Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands, possibly even millions of titles to choose from in a tremendous range of literary genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device in your hands, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, you name it. And here's the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get a free audiobook by today's guest, Ayanna Mathis, The Twelve Tribes of Hattie, her debut novel, a New York Times bestseller, and Oprah Winfrey book club selection can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program a little bit. I get a few nickels. That is pleasant. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is people who write about people. This is people talking about writing about people and things. Thank you for tuning in. It's good to be with you. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. Uh, a lot to get to today. A big show. Ayanna Mathis is here. You've probably heard of her by now. Oprah Winfrey, The Book Club, uh, The Twelve Tribes of Hattie, her debut novel. Uh, it's a big bestseller. It's a terrific book, and it's an incredible story of how it all happened. Very pleased to have Ayana here, and she and I are going to be talking in just a moment. Before we get there, I want to do some mail. Uh, I heard from a lot of you regarding episode 155, I believe, the, uh, the Lenore Zion episode and the monologue where I talk about uh, the dinner party invitation from a listener here in uh, L.A., my psychodigital crisis that whole situation, uh, trying to decide how to respond when a listener and her husband invited me over for dinner. So here's one response from a listener. It's a letter from a guy named Nate 
who writes, Dear Brad, I feel your pain. It is very strange to me how many of us, writers in particular, have a deep craving for genuine human interaction, but also fear it above all else. To me, there's nothing worse than a dinner party. Also, I appreciate you talking so openly about the predicament of being the host of a podcast. We listeners know you a lot better than you know us. It's the predicament I find every time I try to write emails to writers uh, I like. It's, it's always hard to know how much or how little to say. Do you introduce yourself as you would to any regular person you're trying to get to know? Do you keep it short and sweet? I mean, for fuck's sake, I'm thinking about it right now. I'm going on too long. Christ. Anyhow, suffice it to say it's plenty awkward for both parties. I think you did the right thing in replying. All best, Nate. And uh, as an addendum, I should let you guys know that I actually did hear from the young woman who invited me to her home to have dinner with she and her husband. Uh, And it took a while. It took a few days, which sort of messed with my head. Like, uh, you know, I sent my email reply to her, which was a little bit clumsy, but I felt was, you know, fairly cordial. And uh, then I did the monologue where I talked about all of it in detail, and I didn't hear anything back. So, of course, I was automatically assuming that I had offended them, that I had ruptured the relationship beyond repair and done something uh, tragically bad, etc. But uh, then last night, uh, the young woman, and her name is Leah, you know, she wrote to me and she said, here's her letter uh, verbatim, Dear Brad, OMG, I am so sorry to have sent you into a psychodigital crisis, and for having taken so long to respond, I'm just back from a trip to Mexico City and therefore have not yet gotten around to listening to the last two episodes, but I just now am getting back into things and started the Lenore Zion episode, and holy shit, you're talking about my email. Ha ha. I will admit that I didn't exactly know how to respond to your email. The invite didn't seem that odd to me because I have initiated friendships with people I've only met online before, and it's been great. I suppose it's always been first for a coffee in a public place, though. But the people in question were female, and women get weirded out about safety, as do I. And being that I am, t- uh, that I too am careful, I totally get your trepidation. It's no big deal. I would have been fine with a simple quote, "Thank you," but I don't want to mix my private and podcast lives. End quote. That would have totally satisfied me. Anyhow, I will just enjoy listening to the show. That's enough for me. Cheers, Leah. So uh, it's worth mentioning that since I got that email, I have exchanged a couple of messages with Leah, and it looks like an actual meeting, an actual face-to-face meeting is indeed going to happen at a neutral location (laughs) in April. I sort of insisted on it. It was like the tables suddenly turned, you know? She was like, it's fine, we don't have to meet, and I was like, no, we're meeting, (laughs) After all this, it's happening. So uh, there's a bit of resolution, and I'll certainly keep you all posted as things progress. Uh, Okay, so just a few more letters quickly, and then we'll get on to the main event. Here is one from a listener listener named Drew. Dear Brad, seriously, your brand of overthinking things is funny. Roll with it. It's like Woody Allen light in a way that makes sense. And coming from one overthinker to another, you come off totally in charge, which is really quite sexy, actually. (laughs) 
And speaking of sexy, you have the three-way idea all wrong. And uh, let me interject here. He's referring to the monologue that I did in episode 153 involving threesomes. So Drew continues, It's not exactly about dividing up satisfaction equally among the three people like you've implied with the fear that someone's going to get left out. Amazing threesomes are possible, but the real trouble can start after when someone actually liked the experience a little more than the others. I've heard horror stories that are almost novel-worthy. Jealousy, cheating, it can get ugly, or hot, depending on the way it gets written in the end. The perfect threesome exists, but it's about as easy to obtain as the perfect job, and even if you land that job, it probably won't last forever. I have stories myself, but I'm saving them for the great American novel, or at least the internet. Is that the same thing now? Sincerely, Drew. And then a uh, listener named Pi, P-I-E, writes, Hey Brad, I've always enjoyed your podcast. I've been listening since the beginning. Lately, though, your opening monologues have led me either to skip ahead or to delete the podcast altogether without making it to the interview. It seems like you're on a sort of <clears throat> you're on a sort of hyper a hyper introspective trip that I understand is interesting to you and probably to some of your more devoted listeners, but which just sort of feels like excessive self-regard or fascination. Honestly, I don't think a dinner invitation merits several minutes of monologue. Ditto what it means about you if you decide not to go to AWP. Am I crazy to think that it really doesn't matter one way or the other? It also seems to me that more and more frequently you interrupt your subjects in order to bring the conversation around to know, around to one of your own experiences, thoughts, or ideas. I'm not writing to be unkind, but just to let you know about my take on things, because for a long time there, I really looked forward to your new episodes, but lately the show seems changed and oddly self-focused. I have a feeling many of your listeners might like that change because they feel they're getting to know you better. It used to seem as if A little of your life was slipping into the conversation, which was cool, but now it feels like the show is sort of your diary. That could be cool, but AWP angst and dinner party invites and, quote, why am I like this, end quote, has worn a little thin lately. Yours sincerely, Pi. Damn. Uh, And then finally, a listener named Molly writes, Hi Brad, I'm an architecture student in blustery Halifax, Nova Scotia who discovered the show about six months ago, I am consistently amazed at how listening to writers speak about their lives and work informs my design work in such a rich way. Parallels between architecture and writing aside, I've been reading novels alongside my uh, studio work and taking more joy in my own writing. Another thing, for the past five years, I've been tolerating a studio environment where people live, breathe, eat, bathe, and vomit architecture. In a, pretty un- in a pretty unhealthy way that completely removes them from the real world. It's the kind of place where people look at you accusingly for going home at 10 p.m. on a Saturday and the only leisure reading lying around are glossy copies of Azure and Architectural Digest. I guess what I'm getting at is that listening to your show has provided me with an escape from this strange, upsetting place and has redirected me towards a more normal existence, at least in my head. If I could force all of my fellow students to listen to you and just relax already, I would. We'd probably have way better buildings, too. Okay, thanks for everything, Molly. So, 
There's mail. Thanks again for writing, you guys. And sorry if I didn't get to your letter. Uh, if you have something you would like to send to me, thoughts, opinions, etc., the address, once again, is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So my guest today is Ayanna Mathis. She is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and a recipient of a Mishner Copernicus Fellowship. Her debut novel, The Twelve Tribes of Hattie, was published back in December by Knopf and then hand-selected by Oprah Winfrey as an official title of Oprah's Book Club 2.0, which then vaulted the novel onto the New York Times bestseller list and a whole range of regional bestseller lists. Uh, basically, it changed Diana's life. So very pleased to have her here. This is our conversation. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen, the lovely and talented Ayanna Mathis. I'm in Iowa City, Iowa, where the relentless winter continues to be unrelenting. Um, I'm in, um, I'm teaching first semester at the Iowa Writers Workshop, so I'm in my office in the Dye House, which is um, the sort of building where the workshop is housed. And uh, there are a lot of empty bookshelves here because I'm visiting faculty, so I'm only going to be here from January to May. And they give you an office, but it's like filled with bookshelves. I, I guess as a person who cre teaches creative writing, should have a lot of books. But you know, if you're only here for four months, you probably didn't really bring very many books. So it's sort of accusatory. <laughs> um, but but that's you know, <laughs> that's where I am. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, and you know, you're in the middle of a pretty uh, amazing run for a, a debut novelist. Is that a fair statement? I mean, you've had a pretty amazing last 12 months. That's a, Yeah, that's a, that's a fair statement. That is definitely a fair statement. So I kind of want to start in an obvious place, or it seems obvious to me, uh, because a lot of what has happened to you, I think, is attributable to Oprah. Certainly. Uh, yeah. she's, she's had a huge impact. She's had a huge impact on a lot of uh, people's lives in publishing. And I know you probably might, you know, you might be sick of talking about it, but I'm going to make you do it at the end. Um, <laughs> Everyone does. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> but I, it's also, that sounds ungrateful. Like, I, I am, like, you know, obviously my life is entirely changed by, by, by what's happened. She is. This is what I was thinking, okay? I was sitting here prepping for this, and I thought to myself, you know, in a lot of ways, she is like the Willy Wonka of American letters. Like, if you... <laughs> Like, if you get the golden ticket from Oprah, like, it's a really big thing. You're like Charlie Bucket, you know, like it happened. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's very true. Okay, so t take us, first of all, inside that moment. 
Like, where are you when that call comes, and how does that all go down? So I was on vacation, actually. Um, I sort of, I sort of hate to tell the story, also because the, the the story makes me sound like really bougie and like I have like some kind of like perfect life, but I don't. But so I'll just go ahead. I was on vacation in Paris, and I was um, renting this apartment. And before I left, my publicist says, "Oh, oh, magazine wants to." review the book, which is really great. You know, it's my first novel. So I'm, you know, just getting a review in O magazine is really great, you know? So we're very excited. And then, and then she said, Oh, a couple of days later, she says, Oh, well, they don't just want to review it. There's even better news. They want to, you know, do like a, like a paragraph long sort of longer review with like a little quote. And so then we're all really, very, very excited. And she says, okay, but they need a quote. And so, but I was going to be away. I was like getting on the plane the next day or something. And so I was like, well, can they wait? And she said, no, 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 because they're going to press that, so they can't wait. So, they, so we set this whole thing up with the books editor of the magazine. She was going to call me, and I was going to talk to her for like 10 minutes so she could get this quote from me. And it could, I could be in O Magazine, and I was very excited about the whole thing. Except that it had been raining the whole time that um, my partner and I had been in Paris. And the day that we were sort of scheduled to have this call was the first sunny day. And so we were really excited, but then in the middle, and we were all the way across town, and in the middle of this day, I had to come back because the interview, the call was set up for 2 p.m. So it's like the sun is shining on the sun, you know, everything is just wonderful, and I'm like, oh, I gotta go back to the apartment so that I can take this call because it had to be on a landline. I couldn't call my cell phone. Okay, fine. So I, you know, I go back across town, and I'm like a little grumpy because I'm like, it's a lovely sunny day, and then I feel ungrateful and like divaish. But I was like, I really, you know, it's just a lovely sunny day. So I get back and I get back and I remember it was 1.55 and I'm sort of winded and I sit down and I wait for the phone to ring. And 2 o'clock comes and the phone doesn't ring. And then it's 2.05 and the phone doesn't ring. And then it's 2.10 and the phone doesn't ring and the sun is shining and beckoning me, you know, from outside. And so I'm just about to call the number that they had given me, you know, because I'm thinking, oh, something must be wrong and I'm sort of slightly annoyed. And I'm thinking also that something must be wrong and, you know, oh, it's lunchtime, I could you know, be eating a crap, whatever. And then the phone rings, it's 2.12, and I pick up the phone, I'm expecting this book's editor, so I pick up the phone, oh, hello. And this voice says, this is Oprah Winfrey. And I, and, I, and I said, no, it isn't. And then it sort of went on from there. Wow. Okay, so that's like... That's almost too perfect. You're in Paris on a sunny. I know. That's why I don't like to tell the story because it's obnoxious. But <laughs> that's great, though. It's great. So then, you talked to Oprah for how long? About a half an hour. Okay. Did you cry? No. You didn't. You were too shocked to cry. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. Or, no, no, I didn't cry. I would cry. Um, I would. What did you say? I said I would weep personally, but you know. That's no, I didn't cry. I didn't. I cried. I think. I think I cried later. It was much later in the day, or no, not at that much. Maybe an hour later when I called my mother, I started to cry. Wow. I like I called my mother to tell her, and then I and then I started to cry. But no, I didn't cry. It was very strange, you know. It was. Um, I was. I was super. Can you hear that? It's like the heating. Oh, it is. Yeah, I like. Can it. you hear this knocking sound? It's yeah. the, it's, this is an old building. It's the pipes. So okay. sorry. Um, I thought I should mention. I was like, should I ignore it or mention it? I don't know. No, it's. There's nothing I could do about it. So uh, anyway, so um, so I, I, it was very strange because for, I went through this. You know, we went through this kind of back and forth, which I'm sure is very boring for her. Cause 
whenever she calls normal people, you know, they must be like, what are you talking about? This isn't Oprah. We went through that back and forth for a while. She's very gracious about it. And then finally, I realized that it was her because the voice sounded like her, you know? I was like, oh, it is actually Oprah Winfrey. So, and then she started asking me questions about the book. I don't ask me what they were because I don't remember anymore. The whole thing is kind of a weird blur in my mind. But she started asking me sort of serious, like, person, you know, questions that people ask people. And there's something in my head was like, okay, Anna, you have to somehow try and sound like a sensible human being. And so, um, and so I think that with that kind of flicking of whatever switch that was, my urge to cry got kind of tamped down because I didn't want to be foolish and weeping on the phone. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be foolish. I mean, that's the thing, you know, and I'll get to this, but like, there's something about Oprah that's sort of commanding. Yeah, yeah, you really don't want to be any kind of foolish, no. So, okay, so rest of the day, you hang up with Oprah, you know, and you said you were there with your partner. Like, did you go out into Paris and, like, just start drinking wine and eating cheese? Well, so, to get off the phone, and then I had to call my mother, and then I had to call my best friend, and everyone cried. So my mother was sort of stunned, silent, and kept repeating the same phrase over and over again. And then she got really quiet, and then I started crying, and then I called my best friend, and he he never cries. He's just not a, a crier. He was, like, in the street, and he started crying, and then and then finally I started crying. And then um, at one point I was like, I've got to go outside. And so I went outside, and I hadn't, you know, my, my, my girlfriend was sort of sitting there with me, and she... You know, so she was kind of, over, you know, listening to the, to the phone conversation, etc., and then we, we got outside, and I don't know why I didn't say to her specifically, you know, Oprah called to say that I was the next book club pick. I, I think it's because it didn't click in my head. And Oprah said this to me, obviously, at some point during the conversation. But for a while, I remember the really strange refrain in my head was, how bizarre that Oprah Winfrey would call me to tell me she liked my book. But like I, couldn't, like I couldn't sort of get to, to the point, you know? So, right. so anyway, so the whole thing happens. We go outside, and so then I say this to, to, to my girlfriend. And and she was so overwhelmed and happy that she actually laid down in the street, like on the sidewalk. <laughs> laid down on the sidewalk. Where were? What part of town were you in? Where were you in? We were in the second. So we were also in like like a bougie part of town. You know what I mean? People were like, "Ew, look at these terrible Americans lying down on our sidewalks." You know. Um, and so, <laughs> so whatever. So she, you know, she got up, and so we went to. Um, and now I'm going to sort of um, butcher the, the name because I can't speak French. But we went to. Le Cousserie de Lila, you know, that sort of Heming, famous Hemingway sure, bar sure, restaurant yeah. place. So we went there and we ordered a bottle of champagne that I absolutely couldn't afford. And we sat at the bar and we ate oysters and drank champagne. And it was the best thing that Clue could ever possibly have done. That's awesome. It really was. That's it really awesome. was. Okay. So um, what's it like? Then you actually met Oprah at some point. You actually yes. sat down with her and were in a room with her. What is it yes. like to be in a room with Oprah Winfrey? <laughs> Um, it's very hard. The whole thing goes by in a blur. It's, I don't know. I feel like it's like when, I mean, it's not the same thing. It's just not like I'm being really sarcastic, but I feel like it must be like, <laughs> you know, like if you, I don't know, have like an audience with, I don't, I don't know who, like Jesus or something. I don't know. Not even the, but because it's really weird. Like I don't, I don't remember a lot of it. Yeah. People ask me this and I'm like, well, I don't really remember what happened, but I, but I do remember that. So, so I met her twice. One was when we did the, the television interview, and the first was when um, the shoot for the magazine. And I was completely, I was fine. And then I, it, it, the whole thing got pushed back a little later than it was supposed to happen. Because, you know, go figure, she's busy. Right. And 
So, so we started maybe two hours later than we were supposed to. And during most of this, I was relatively calm until about 20 minutes before she, she wasn't actually in the building. And then her assistant or somebody comes over and is like, oh, you know, Oprah's going to be here in 20 minutes. And then I became terrified, like, <laughs> like just completely beside myself with terror. And, um, and I had to sort of change my clothes because, you know, I hadn't, I, did, I had like my street clothes on because I didn't want to be wrinkled or whatever. So I changed my clothes and, and so they're like, okay, we're going to, you know, go down the hall. So we were sort of walking down the hall with this kind of entourage of people to, to meet Oprah. Now I'm really, if I had been beside myself with terror, now I'm having like a, an out of body terror experience. And then I walk into this room where she was and she's, and she does this thing. She does the thing that she does on the show, you know, and she's like, everyone gets a new car. <laughs> she says, it was so weird. <laughs> really bizarre. Oh my god! Yeah. Very distinct. And so I, I kind of didn't. I sort of looked around. Like I mean, that's my name, you know. But I, I didn't. <laughs> I wasn't really sure sort of where to put my eyes. And then I'm. And then she says, you know, she comes over. She she gives lots of hugs. So she comes over and she gives me give me a hug. And then. um and she says, how are you? And she's like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. Things got so behind. It's a crazy day, et cetera. And she says, how are you? And I was like, I'm good. You know, it's like I'm a little, you know, I'm a little petrified. And then she says, and then she goes, don't be nervous. Oh, come on, petrified. And she sort of put her arm around me and like led me into this room where they were actually going to take the photos. And, and it was very strange. I actually stopped being nervous. I don't know why. I mean, I guess that's why she's Oprah, right? I mean, she's been a career getting sort of regular people to talk and act natural it was very strange I, i've never you know and i mean I'm, I'm pretty convinced of my emotions i'm not that malleable as far as human beings go but i for whatever reason it, it worked well and then there was no there was no like oprah fear like i mean i know there was fear of like oh my god i've got to like be in the room with this woman but like she didn't intimidate you why do i find no myself? she's not intimidating she's not she's a warm no presence. no she's i mean she's an enormous presence but she, but I think, and I guess this is also the reason why Oprah's Oprah is that the 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 enormity of her presence is used not to um, to keep people at bay. It's used to sort of sweep you up into whatever trajectory she wants you to be swept up in. Right. It's 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 very particular. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. So tell I me, mean, is there any are there any details like from the experience, like things you learned about her that listeners should know about? Like, does she? I don't know. Did she do anything that like the average person wouldn't already know that you can remember? Or is there something that stood out? Like, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, except for the, the sort of singularity of her energy. But I mean, I guess people would figure that out. And it's a hard thing to describe because I think if you don't sort of experience it, so it sounds sort of, it sounds unbelievable. I mean, it, it's really, it was really shocking. I mean, she just, she just, you just sort of go and do the thing Oprah wants you to do. I, I, I you know, it's, it's really incredible. And the other thing I think, which, this sounds really obvious. Like, of course, this is the case. But, you know, when I was at the magazine and then when we did the television taping, which happened uh, in Chicago at Harpo, you, you really do understand the extent to which the, that she built that empire and then it runs entirely on her energy. I mean, I shouldn't say entirely. She has an excellent staff, of course. Do you know what I mean? Of really creative, talented people. But she is sort of the alpha and omega, you know what I mean, yeah. in, in terms of her empire. And, I mean, and she really is. And she is fast, and she sort of sees everything and notices everything and remembers everything. It's, it's kind of uncanny. 
Wow. So do you keep in touch or is it just like that? Like, do you have like Oprah's like cell and do you guys like text and stuff? Or is... No, no. I'm kind of jealous because apparently that happened to Cheryl Strait. That doesn't happen to me. Oh, really? So there's, they're like... <laughs> oh, I don't know. That's a rumor. That's a rumor. I shouldn't say that. I don't know that that's true. I mean, like Cheryl Strait didn't tell me that, nor did any friends of Cheryl Strait. This is a rumor that I heard. Wow. Maybe like Cheryl and Oprah are going to go like hiking together or something. I know. Some I know. Maybe. experience. Um, so, okay. So like just to kind of... Uh, move on in a natural direction like the book uh you know your novel has obviously reached because of this experience has reached a lot of people a lot more people than it otherwise would have and sure. maybe uh people that uh it, you know it wouldn't have reached on its own uh, of its own accord otherwise do you know what i'm saying so like when you sure. go, when yeah. you go out to do readings uh or you get email from readers has any of have any of those experiences surprised you you know when you're like oh my god i can't believe that you know this person was touched by the book or i can't believe these people showed up in my reading or do you know what i'm saying like yeah yeah absolutely um i think you know well i got this i got this i got this uh email from um this retired uh, uh maybe a white man in his 70s he was a retired navy captain and I just never thought of like military people, <laughs> like ex-military people, as being sort of attracted to my book. I mean, and he was a very kind of like, like he still had his crew cut and everything. Do you know what I mean? Because he sent a little picture of him and reading the book. And so, so certainly people like that. But you know, but, but I think the thing more than sort of unexpected readers is the kind of um, how do I phrase this? I mean, sort of generosity with which the book has been received. People are so kind to me. Like, I don't get readers, I don't get readings or don't have readings in which people are sort of, um, it, it happens occasionally, but when people are sort of super staid and being really quiet or kind of grumpy or sort of hate you, you know what I mean? Like I, I get these, these, my readings, there's so much generosity, like people come up and they stand in the signing line for like an hour and they come and they say, thank you. They tell me that they're proud of me. It's, it's really something. I mean, I've, I've, I've twice now I've sort of gotten through the reading and gotten through my signing line and everything and been on the way back to whatever hotel and, and just cried because people are so warm and so generous. Uh, it's, it's really shocking to me. God, it's such, I mean, you realize you're like living the dream with that. Like people standing in line for an hour to have you sign their book. It's, it's got to be surreal for you. It's very surreal. It's very surreal. It's, it's, it's helpful also that one is usually so exhausted during these things. that you, don't really, you can't really fully process it because you're just really tired, you know. But it is. It's very surreal. I, and I suspect that when I am not in the middle of this, I will look back on it and who knows kind of what I will think. But I'm kind of constantly shell-shocked, so I don't, process, I don't do a lot of processing, you know? <laughs> I only time. process things that are super obvious, you know? There's yeah. no, I have no nuance or subtlety, you know what I mean? Wow. So, um, you know, I don't want to be uh, rude or inappropriate, but I am curious with regard to the book club selection uh, mm -hmm. as it pertains to book sales. So, mm -hmm. like, how big of a bump do you get? Can you give us, like, a ballpark? I think there's a lot of people out there who would be curious to know. Like, did, like I don't – I think it's different because it, it's really hard to measure. I mean, because obviously she doesn't have her show anymore, so it doesn't have the same kind of bump that it had when she had – you know, I mean, she had, what was it, 22 million viewers a week or something, whatever it was, you know, in, in sort of the height of the television show. So it's different – and then, and then she stopped. Then, of course, the book club was stopped for a while. And then the first 
2.0 book club, which has a whole kind of internet presence. I mean, obviously there's, there's the broadcast on the own network, but it also has a huge kind of internet component with Oprah.com and other kinds of, and like the, the HuffPo um, Oprah channel and all that stuff. Um, so it's, it's just different. And then also when the book club was relaunched, the first pick was wild, you know, Cheryl Strade's memoir. So, so we're going from memoir to literary fiction. So the difference in, in the kind of readership and the way that it is sort of marketed and approached is vastly different. Also Cheryl Strade, this was not her first book. This is my first book. And also Cheryl Strade's book had already been out for, I think, six months by the, or maybe four months, whatever it was. It had already been out and was having a life and was selling quite well by the time Oprah chose it. So it's really, I think for everyone in the industry, it is very hard to make a kind of really concrete gauge of, of what the 2.0 book club is doing for people. People know that it's not as much as when she had the TV show. And certainly have I had a bump? Of course. Well, you're but on the, you're on the extent, new, we should say you're on the New York Times bestseller list. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, not, that's yeah. not enough. And, and, and especially for a literary novel, you know, most of the time. Of course. And for a first time, I mean, nobody has ever heard of me. So it's, it's you know, I mean, it's huge. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on the office selling list now, but I was 10 weeks on the list proper, which is an enormous bump, obviously. And I don't know, you know, uh, what would have happened had it not been for this. I, I have no idea. And so have like, uh, have you gotten like, I don't know, I don't want to be too intrusive but i think these questions like are relevant to my listeners like can you can you now write a book your next book with no fear of having to pay the rent i mean i would assume that's the case has this has it given you I don't, not really i mean i don't I, I think not really i mean i don't i I've, I've you know there are lots of you know sort of foreign sales and things like that and certainly it makes a cushion but that i'm sort of financially you know sort of worry-free. I don't think so. It was, it was interesting. I had, um, I, I, there's, as much as all of this is wonderful, it is also sort of difficult and strange in certain kinds of ways. And a friend of mine put me in touch with Edwige Denticat, who's, who was also an Oprah book club pick, but back when Oprah had the show. So imagine, you know, sure. when she had her television show. And so, I, and, and I had a really nice conversation with her. She's a very nice, very funny lady. And and she said, to him, and she was sort of talking about things that people say and things that people think. And she was like, the one thing also is like, you will never ever have as much money as people think that you have because of this. Yeah, and I was I'm, like, I'm imagining yeah. You, I'm imagining and she was you. like, yeah. Okay. You know? no, I'm <laughs> sitting here. I'm sitting here imagining you just like set for life. Like it's the. Only no, 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 well, no. I mean, I have to. You know, I have a cushion, but like, am I just going to sort of sit around not having a job for the next four, five years? Oh hell no! You know, like I've got to, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I'm not complaining, but certainly, no, you know, this isn't a situation where I'm, you know, yeah, I can sort of, like, I'm not, yeah, no. Okay. And so, um, let's talk about, uh, or actually, you know what, I, I had one more question uh, along those lines, like movie rights, did that happen in the wake of the Oprah selection, or is that? No, there's sort of some talk, which I'm not allowed to talk about, um, and then there's a one sort of more serious kind of talk, which I'm also not allowed to talk about, but it's all, you know, it's, it's all very sort of flimsy. Who, who, it's, it's, yeah, I yeah. don't know what will happen. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, the next thing I wanted to ask you about is the Iowa writers workshop, which you're, mm -hmm. you're now an instructor at for the semester. Um, it obviously had a huge impact. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about how you arrived there as a student and what it meant to you in terms of, uh, writing Hattie? Sure. Uh, well, I wrote the I wrote the entire book here um, when I was a student, 
And I mean, it, it, the, the workshop completely, it changed my life. It, it, it really did. I mean, that, that sounds like such a sort of pat thing to say, but, but in this case, it is absolutely true. Um, I have been writing since I was a kid, but, uh, and I wrote poetry for many, 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 many years. And then uh, somewhere around my mid twenties or so, the poetry well kind of dried up. I don't know why I just couldn't I couldn't write poetry anymore and kind of prose had not occurred to me as a thing to write um either even in fiction or non-fiction just I didn't write prose and so I stopped writing entirely for about five years maybe and then uh and I was I was living um I was living out of the country in those five years so it was kind of fine that I wasn't writing during that time and then I came back to New York um which is where I normally live and I I, had, I don't know why, um, but I, I had been thinking a lot about writing, and I had begun writing these kinds of very um, sort of language-driven lyrical little vignettes about, about like autobiographical vignettes. And I thought, oh, maybe I can do something with these, but I don't have any discipline, and I'm sort of terrified by the whole, you know, committing to writing thing, because again, my whole life I've been sort of flirting with this. And so I started, I took a class basically. And then I took another class and the class that I landed in was, I was taught by a man named Jackson Taylor, who used to be the um, associate director of the new school's MFA program. Now he has founded a new program at St. Joseph's College. But anyway, he would teach this sort of independent class that had nothing to do with the new school, just kind of because he felt like doing it. And it was it was just an it was incredibly generative, smart, gentle, but with high expectations kind of environment in which a lot of people I think really thrived. And my I, I also randomly in this class was um, Justin Torres who wrote who wrote with the animals, and, and we, so we met in this class and and we just became really fast friends. And um, he came to the workshop the year before I did. He sort of did the whole application thing, and, and he came. And I had not been thinking about an MFA at all, not even remotely. Um, and nor had I been thinking about writing as a career. My assumption was that my relationship with writing, with writing would always be that it would be something that I always did, that I would at some point publish a novel, but that I would always have a kind of day job or some other thing that kind of paid the rent and put food on the table and that I would do it out of love and out of passion. And that would be that. And so that class, and I think also meeting Justin and being just around a lot more writers who were, who were kind of, you know, not, not hobbyists in a certain kind of way changed everything and sort of changed the whole, the whole way that I, I was thinking about things. And so I decided to apply to Iowa and then I, and then I came here. Okay. And, you know, you wrote, when you think about it, you wrote the book relatively quickly. It's like under, did, yeah. under two years. That's, yeah. that's pretty good, you know, especially for a first novel. And um, you abandoned another book project while you mm -hmm. were there, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so uh, it was, was um, oh, it was really, it was bad. Well, it, I, I shouldn't, I say such horrible things about it, but I do think it was kind of bad. So you remember I just was saying that I, when I came back um, to New York, I was writing this kind of series of really language-driven lyrical little autobiographical vignettes. And so what I thought was that perhaps that material could be turned into something like a kind of creative non-fiction-ish memoir-esque kind of something. And so that's what, but, but when I began to try and create a kind of narrative arc out of those, 
the, the sort of the bottom fell out of it. I mean, it, it was the writing was flat. It was um, it just sort of didn't go anywhere. And that's what I was working on. Um, oh well, I should backtrack. So so and that was nonfiction. And then when I decided that I wanted to come to Iowa, I thought, well, maybe I should just try and make this into fiction. So I fictionalized the, the whole thing, and and then I applied to Iowa with that. And that was the project that I thought that I would continue to work on while I was here. But then it was bad, so I had to abandon it. So how did you know to abandon it? Like, what about that moment? Well, I was um, I was in it was my first semester here and my first workshop here to work you know class whatever. It was with Marilyn Robinson, and I I brought in this section that I had been working on, um, that I'd been working on sort of feverishly, because I knew that I had to turn something in for a workshop, and so I, I brought this in, and I had some real kind of misgivings about it. I thought, mm, this is sort of just skating by, and there's something a bit lifeless about it. And I I brought it in, and, and Marilyn basically, you know, gave it the, the big thumbs down, and and then I was really devastated. And well, um, wait, how did she give you the big thumbs down? Like, how does you know what I'm saying? Like the mechanic, <laughs> like what is what does a big thumbs down from Marilyn Robinson look like? <laughs> well, she she said uh, she said it's going to sound really like anticlimactic as soon as I say what she said, but it was totally devastating. She said the, it is true. She, she, everyone sort of talk, you know you're in a workshop. It's eleven or twelve people, and so your classmates are all talking. You you the person being workshopped is silent, so everyone's kind of talking. And then Marilyn tends to wait until the end to say whatever she has to say about the work. And so she waited till the end. Everyone said, made kind of middling comments, you know. And then, and then Marilyn said, well, it is true that the characters are not sufficiently complex to the situation in which you've placed them. Now, and that's a quote I will never, ever forget in my entire life. And that probably doesn't sound that horrible, but, but it is really horrible because basically it means that your characters are just, are not working. They have no depth. They're flat. <laughs> they're not, you know, they're just sort of little puppets moving around. And if you don't have any characters, you, you know, kind of got nothing, you know? So, um, and, and she, she basically articulated something that I think that I knew, but a was sort of afraid to admit to myself and B didn't quite know how to articulate. You know, I didn't have, coming here, which is a wonder, one of the wonderful things about this program, is that there are many people in this program at any given point who have, who, the, the, the fiction that they apply with to get into the program is the first fiction that they've written. And they don't know lots of stuff about craft and, and all these kinds of issues. And you learn them as you go along, you know. And so what she said was sort of simple sounding, even though, even though it is not simple sounding. I mean, I really do believe enormously in the primacy of character, always. So it's not really simple, but it is deceptively simple sounding if, you, if you're a person who's sort of been around writers all the time and think about character and think about point of view, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're not, I mean, that's kind of mind-blowing. You know, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of experience with craft and things like that when I came. So that was a pretty devastating comment and, and also an incredibly true comment, you know, delivered with, with gentleness, but it was also it was totally true. And so then I had a big crisis and I kind of went around weeping quite literally. And, you know, I had, 
a big sort of moment of fraudulence, and I thought, what am I doing here? You know, I've left my life in New York. I'm I'm old. Like I've just you know, this is a foolish, ridiculous thing that I'm doing. How, how old were you when you were there? I mean, you were. I was 36 when I got here. Okay, so okay. Um, but I, you know, in, in, there are lots of people here that were much younger, and then in and in my mind, I was like, well, I left. You know, I had a job and a life, and I've just left it all, and I'm living on you know peanuts, and I'm in this small town in the middle of Iowa, and it's cold, and oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And then I thought, well, you know, either I can sort of spend the next two years, you know, wandering around having a crisis, or I can sort of figure something else out. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I will put this project aside until I can kind of get some perspective on it and maybe figure out what's wrong with it. And in the meantime, I'll try and write some short stories. And the short stories turn into Hattie. Okay. So let's talk about that for a moment, or, you know, because... It's not easy to drop like a book length project that you're working on and then just immediately, I mean, at least not for me, to jump right into another one and have something be there. So mm-hmm. was, was Hattie incubating in you? Like, do you feel like there were, you know, had you been entertaining these characters in some way prior to Iowa and, you know, they've been percolating or did they, did they really just materialize for you right then and right there in that moment? I think that they kind of material. I mean, clearly, I must have been thinking about them, right? You know, because that's, I mean, that's otherwise that that couldn't have happened. But they were not. They were not in the forefront of my mind uh, by any means. I thought I do remember thinking at some point, and saying actually to Justin at some point, in the midst of kind of trying to hash out my failed fictionalized memoir thingamajig, saying, "Gosh, you know." Maybe like in the next book or something, I, I would really, I'm really interested in these kind of like my mother's generation of Philadelphians, you know, that kind of like first great migration born in the North generation, you know, in the 40s and 50s. I just think those people are so interesting. One day, maybe I will really just write a book about those people. But that's kind of as far as it got. Um, but then obviously a lot more must have been happening that I wasn't aware of because when I sat down to kind of try and generate these short stories to escape from my failing fictionalized memoir, that's, that's who, that's who came. So clearly something had been going on there that I didn't realize. Yeah. And, and, you know, the book, it seems to like, yeah, it, it seems to me to swing for the fences in a lot of ways, uh, in, in, mm-hmm. meaning that it covers a lot of ground. Like you've got, mm-hmm. you've got characters who are looking for salvation in religion. You've got a character who's sexually confused. You've got a character who's molested. There's an alcoholic, there's gambling, there's schizophrenia, there's wealth, mm-hmm. there's, you know, like, there's all these different things happening and it's got like a pretty broad sweep to it. And so I'm wondering like when you sat down to write it uh, or to write these, you know, what I guess at the beginning were short stories and as they started to accumulate, were you cognizant of this? Did you say to yourself, I'm going to try to do it all. I'm going to try to reflect all of life as I know it. Um, you know, like no. how explicit was your ambition or, you know, or did it just come that, you know, was it something that kind of grew organically out of the process and it just so happens to be there in the end? I think I think it I think it grew organically out of the process. I mean, I I knew that there were certain things that I knew. I knew that there was going to be once I I should backtrack. So I didn't really realize that I was writing a novel until I was probably about three stories in, and and then and and I thought and I'm a little you know I'm a little slow on the uptake. So I was like, hey, isn't this so funny that these people you know they all are in Philadelphia and it keeps being 1952. What a coincidence, you know. And then and then it was like duh, you know. And so, um, so then, you know, so when, when I got over that hurdle and I was like, oh, this is a book. Um, okay. Um, I, the, the way that I work in this, in this novel anyway, was 
that I, I sort of tackled each chapter quite separately because they do have a somewhat, they, they have a fairly discrete narrative arc, though I don't think that the stories, I don't think that the chapters actually work as short stories. If you sort of pluck one out and, and sort of put it on its own as a short story, that sort of incredible art of compression that makes short stories work, these, these don't do that, which I think is why partially they're a novel. They're, they're really quite reliant on each other. And of course they're reliant on Hattie, you know, who is kind of appears in each one. But at any rate, um, so I worked on them individually and, and I, I didn't have a sense of like, I'm going to sort of exactly, kind of, as you said, sort of cover the, the kind of grand scope of humanity as, as I know it. It was simply that each one would come and I would think, I, I knew from the set, from once I knew it was a novel, I knew that I wanted to have, I knew that there would be a child that was gay and I knew that there would be someone who was really mentally ill and I knew that there would be, um, I knew that there would be a child who had, some very intense experiences with religion and as, as it turns out, there are two of those, but, um, and then I also knew that there would be a soldier and that, and there's one of those, but the rest of them, um, they just sort of evolved as I would begin to think about, about the character. Um, some, some sort of situation would kind of present itself to me as a situation in which that person might find themselves. And oddly enough, they would sometimes begin very strangely with an image and an image that would not seem to have anything at all to do with the sort of plot characteristics of the chapter, but somehow that would lead me somewhere. Okay, so then what about uh, research and historical accuracy? Because you're dealing with period, and you're also dealing with a lot of different characters with a lot of different uh, character arcs, you know, like that, that don't yeah. necessarily relate to your immediate experience. So how much sure. did you have to research? Not not a great deal. I mean, I, I you know, my my mother is of of the generation of most of the siblings, or the earlier ones anyway. She was born in, in 1933. And my grandparents were born in 1908 and 1910. And so I grew up not with, I didn't grow up with sort of stories of the South or, or things like that, but I certainly grew up, I think, with a sort of in the ether of my childhood was a kind of, this is how things were in 1950. And, and it, it's, it's very hard to pinpoint. You know, I can't say, like, oh, because they made me watch lots of old movies. My mother actually did make me watch lots of old movies. But, but aside from that, there was just this sort of essence of my childhood. It always felt like it was, like, slightly anachronistic. Like, like I wasn't sort of in the 80s with all of the other kids that I was in school with. You know what I mean? And I was also an only child, so I spent a lot of time around adults. Um, so some of it, I think, was kind of transmitted to me or osmoted to me. I don't even think that's a word, but do you know what I mean? Um, and then some of it, I think, also has to do with, the, I mean, I've read an enormous amount of, of, of sort of literature that was written between like 1920 and 1970 or 80, not, not as part of research for this book, but that, that those tended to often be my natural reading proclivities. And, you know, I mean, you pick up enormous amounts of stuff. I mean, that's an, an enormous education. So, so there was a lot of a kind of, um, the, the essence of it, of the time, I think has been sort of in my mind. What I did have to research, of course, were certain kinds of particulars. You know, there's a story called Bell in which, um, in which she has tuberculosis. So, you know, things like that had, like, how would it have felt? How would it have been treated in 1975? That's the year in which the story is set. Um, things like making sure that in, in, in early stories in the novel that take place in the 20s, um, that, that there would not have indeed been Negro bathrooms on Jim Crow train cars, you know, things like that. But those, those, those tended to be more almost like fact-checking rather than sort of um, exhaustive initial research, which I, I did do almost none of. 
Okay. And then, um, you know, you also made the creative decision to, you know, show us your characters as they're in a crucible. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not like each character's entire life appears in the book. It's kind (laughs) of like a a very critical snapshot of their life Mm -hmm. where character is revealed. So talk, can you talk a little bit about that decision? I mean, it seems like something that just, you know, kind of the nat- it was kind of the way the stories appeared to you or occurred mm-hmm. to you, but you know, ultimately you, there's a lot left out. So how did you yeah. make that decision? Um, I mean, in certain ways, certainly it is the way the stories occurred to me, but it is, it was also a very conscious decision. I, I was really interested in, I, I really, int- I, I wanted to write a novel about these kind of pre-civil rights people with a very kind of post-civil rights sensibility. And what I mean by that is that I wanted there, I wanted to find a way to explore the ways in which things like race, class, enormously class, um, skin color, uh, diction in the way they speak in terms of, you know, do they speak with Southern accents, do they not, all their sort of hierarchies of being, um, and of course their own kind of personalities, you know, their own on wees and depressions and, and, and quirks. I wanted to find a way to write about the ways in which especially these large social factors would have been exerting pressure on these people without ever having to write overtly about the social factors that were exerting pressure on these people. And it seemed to me that, and it still does, that, you, that, that people act most consistently with the essences of themselves when they are in moments of extreme duress, sometimes against their will. Do you know what I mean? When you're just sort of walking around and going to the grocery store or, you know, get, putting gas in your car or whatever, you, you know, you're just sort of a fraction of who you are. But when there are moments in which your life is sort of squeezing you, all the things that make up the deepest parts of your identity come into play. So race, class, psychology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think I, I very purposely sort of put them in these in these these moments in which they were being squeezed because it was it was easier to explore a lot of the the things that I wanted to talk about both from both in terms of the, the sort of internal psychologies and personalities and the larger outside world it was it was much easier to get at a lot of those things if I were looking at them sort of through the lens of of their moments of of, of trouble and and that was what I was interested in exploring those sort of intense moments of trouble well, and speaking of intense moments of struggle, I mean, the central character of the of the novel, Hattie, you know, is right out of the gates, is marked by enormous tragedy, um, you know, with the loss of uh, her twins when she's very young. And, you know, it, it's interesting to me, like what it makes me think of is how um, people respond, because she goes on to become a, a much harder person than she mm-hmm. was at that time, you know, mm-hmm. and so... You know, you just—I just—I think about life and how, when something really terrible happens, or something very—you know—people go through very difficult times, whatever it happens to be. Uh, you know, I've found in my own experience that some people close down uh, mm-hmm. and become maybe colder, and other mm-hmm. people open up. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, the novel definitely—you st- know—made me think about that kind of thing. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, she does. I mean, she. 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 She, I don't think that her ability to love is compromised, but what is enormously compromised is her ability to show affection or to be tender. And she, I think she begins to, she begins to think that those things are sort of, um, not only that they're luxuries, but they're, that they are in some way kind of harmful. Because I think her notion of how the world works and what the world has to offer 
is so skewed by what happens to her so young, you know, so early in her life when she's such a young girl, really. I mean, she's 17. And so I think it's almost like she, she begins to think that she's doing a service to her children by being so um, distant with them and so harsh with them. Because I think she sort of thinks, well, you know, the world is, you know, it's not going to be kind and it's not going to be tender to you. And there isn't tenderness. And so if you're going to survive, then you need to learn how to be tough. And I'm going to teach you how, how to be tough. In addition to the fact that also, you know, I think if you lose children that early in your life, the possibility of a child dying is, well, it's not a possibility anymore. It's a thing that's happened to you. So her preoccupation with just keeping them alive in the most basic kind of way, like fed and clothed and free from sickness and all that kind of stuff becomes um, sort of of, her, of the highest priority. Well, you know, that's, yeah, that's the other thing it made me think of is that parenthood, you know, it's like I have one child and I know how much that takes, but to, you know, to have like nine, 10, 11 kids, mm-hmm. it seems yeah. insane to me. There, there are a limit. There's a limit. I, you know, my grandmother had nine children. I don't know how she yeah. did it, you know, but it's like, you know, different generations, I think. And, um, there's, you know, there's a limit on a person's energy, especially when you're not super well off, you know, you, sure. expend, you expend so much energy just taking care of the basics that there isn't much left over. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, you know, the other thing or another thing that the book um, strikes upon that made me think is the way that we wind like what we wind up inheriting from our parents and how, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes we wind up inheriting, um, you know, obviously there's like there's plenty of physical and mental and obvious things you can think of. But I'm thinking specifically of like the, the resentments and mm. the um, I don't know. It's certain behaviors and, and how that can mm. seem like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you, you say to yourself like, Oh my God, I'm becoming my mom or, you know, sure, yeah, and, yeah, and sometimes absolutely. it's not, it's not necessarily like it's, it's, sometimes you say it like, Oh my God, I'm becoming my mom, you know, like, or I'm becoming right. my mom. <laughs> and it, as, as hard as you might try to sort of stake out your own ground and carve out your own identity, uh, it, it's almost inevitable in some ways that we become our parents. Like there's no avoiding it. I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. I think, you know, Hattie is one of, I, I suppose, you know, you could sort of look at this as a strength. I, I'm, jury's out for me on whether it's a strength or not. I don't know. But she's, it, it's a strength in our American imagination. You know, it's kind of go-it-alone stoicism. You know, it's a very um, sort of highly prized characteristic in our in our sort of ima- American imagination of what a hero is. You know, like the, the, the cowboy on the lone horse kind of thing. And I, and, and so in some ways, Hattie is very much like that. You know, she, she doesn't accept help, um, help. She, she just won't. She doesn't ask for help and she, and she won't accept it even when it's offered, you know. And she, and she also has this kind of, but, but I think that what goes along with that is that she, she has this sort of, um, insistence on her own pain, you know, and, and the singularity of her own pain and the fact that no one could ever kind of possibly understand who she is and what she's been through. And so therefore there's just no point in asking. And I think that she passes that on to her children, both the good side, which is, which is kind of being able to, to get by and get through and be tough. And the bad side, which is this um, kind of stubborn, um, self-sabotaging, go it aloneness that, that does nothing but impoverish your life in the end. And I think that that's what her children do. You know, I mean, it's a, you know, there are a lot of siblings and they don't rely on each other ever. And I think that they've, that, that is 
sort of their mother's legacy to them, I think. Right. Well, and then, you know, speaking of legacies, like this is, I think, like the third big takeaway that I had from the book or like the thing that I, I found myself chewing on. Um, and it's like, you know, it's not just the, the book and the, in the context of it that I, I find myself thinking along these lines, like just the other night, uh, I was watching a documentary on Auschwitz, which, mm-hmm. uh, because that's the kind of thing I do, you know, <laughs> in your spare time yeah, to relax. Fun. I just sit around watching <laughs> Auschwitz documentaries, but I am fascinated by history and, you know, I'm sitting there with Netflix and I start watching this thing and it's just, you know, it's obviously horrifying and all this stuff, but it makes me think, uh, and your novel did the same thing, where you think about the uh, the ripple effect of history, mm. and how, and not only uh, like the broader scope of history, but also personal history, mm. um, and how things, both good and bad, and probably everywhere in between, wind up resonating. And mm. you know, your book really drives this point home with regard to slavery and uh, Jim Crow and the plight of African Americans and the migration and. You know, I, I think about today, and it's like we're still not out from under all that. It, it's still, it's lasting still, like hundreds of years. You know, and so mm-hmm. it makes me think, like, when are we going to be out from under it? Like, is there a time? Like, and we're still not out from under Auschwitz. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, something, no, no, no. Something well, that, that terribly bad happens, and it just echoes for a long time, as it should. Yeah. But it also is kind of depressing to think, like, how do we wind up extricating ourselves from this as a pe- as people? You know. I mean, would that I knew, you know, but I mean, it is, you know, it's like, it's like the, the, the you know, the, the famous Faulkner quote, you know, what is it? The, the past isn't over. It's not even past. You know, it's, I mean, that's, um, I mean, that's absolutely, that's absolutely true. You may think a lot about, about the sort of ripple effects kind of through time. And I mean, again, I was, I was very interested in exploring the lives of these people in a character-based kind of way, you know, I didn't want to make sort of big sweeping social statements, but certainly the um, certainly their lives and the circumstances of their lives are, are shaped in enormous part by the fact that they're black and and by the fact that that they don't have any money, you know, <laughs> and and the fact that 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 most of the the, the, the sort of setting of the story happens before um, the civil rights movement, and and it's interesting because I do think that. That there is a there is a ripple of um, of, of obviously the the sort of concrete things that go along with you know being black and 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 not having any money in the in in the pre in pre civil rights America, but there are also these which I guess is sort of what you were referring to before. There are also these kinds of um, these kinds of psychic wounds that 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 these people are 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 struggling with, and. The, the ways that they that they wound each other, you know, and the, this the community in this book, they're they're pretty insular people, you know. They live in this neighborhood called Germantown, and they are they, you know, are really poor, but they're an aspirant middle class family, and in some ways they have sort of middle class sensibilities about themselves. They're also light skinned, which means a lot sort of in that period of time, and they also tend to speak something closer to, I guess, the King's English, right? Do you know what I mean? And, and those things are, and those things, in, in, in the absence of money, I mean, it's the whole neighborhood of people who, who don't have any money. So in the absence of money, what becomes, um, h- how does the hierarchy get established? And, and there's always a hierarchy with everybody. Do you know what I mean? And so the hierarchy gets established according to, according to skin color and, and with sort of how straight or kinky your hair is and, and what kind of diction you speak with. And... And so th- there is also this sense in which, obviously, all of that stuff is informed 
enormously and completely by the legacy of Jim Crow and then further back the legacy of slavery. But it's also interesting the ways in which the ways in which those things be, had become so internalized that they are sort of turning them against each other. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is not like a kind, compassionate family. They're not mean, terrible people, but they're snobby. They're snooty, snotty, snooty snots, you know? <laughs> and, they're, and they're very judgmental towards each other, and they're very judgmental towards people who are not from their community. And, and, and that, I think, it is more sort of wounding. Do you know what I mean? The this, this sense in which, in which people can, and did certainly, you know, sort of bond together to, to kind of fight certain kinds of things turns into at moments a kind of terrible um, divisiveness, you know, that, that keeps them apart and keeps them from seeking comfort from each other, seeks them from, keeps them from, from being able to join together to create something that would improve their lives. You know, they, they don't do that. Yeah, it's like, you know, God, it's so crazy to think about, like, how often human beings do things thinking that they're protecting themselves when, in fact, they're actually... They're doing the exact opposite. You know, you know it's really interesting. I, I'm a huge, um, I read a lot of Faulkner, and, um, and I'm, I'm, reading, um, I'm reading Absalom, Absalom now, and, which is, is an incredible book. And one of the, the amazing things that happens in Absalom, Absalom, is that, you know, sort of Faulkner tra- traces the history of this, this man named Sutton, who, you know, it all, it all takes place, um, most of the story takes place in the you know, sort of pre-Civil War South, you know. And so Sutton, you know, sort of comes from, from nothing, like really from like a shack in the mountains in, in what was Virginia before it was even Virginia, you know. And then he sort of comes down from the mountains and he decides that he's going to become a man of substance for various reasons. And so he gets some, he, through, by hook and by crook and, you know, blood, sweat and tears, he gets a bunch of slaves and he gets himself a parcel of land and he gets himself a respectable wife, etc., etc. And what is... I mean, the whole thing is fascinating, but one of the things that is so astute and so smart and so amazing about Faulkner is that he, he, he very much discusses the kinds of class hierarchies that existed in the South, you know? So a man like Sutton, who literally came from, like, a, you know, a shack in, in the mountains, he barely, li- actually not literate, and then, you know, learns to read. Instead of sort of aligning those kinds of people, instead of sort of aligning themselves with, let's say, the slaves or other people who were in the same, more or less same class situation as they were, not, not I don't, I don't, we'll leave sort of discussions of, 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 of actually not having freedom out of it, you know what I mean? But that there was this ruling class of a, a tiny, tiny elite ruling class who had all the money and all the power and everybody else, including, you know, so from, from the slaves at the bottom, but up to the overseer class, and then the sort of kind of merchantist class just above them, none of these people had anything. You know, all of these people were dying of the same dysentery. Do you know what I mean? And all of these people were in the same kind of hideous economic situations with horribly low life expectancies and all the rest of it. But they absolutely never bonded together because there was this sort of false, this false divisiveness that was created. You know, this sort of invention of race, basically, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, well, you may be dirt poor and your wife may have died in child labor at 15 and you may have absolutely nothing, but at least you're not that, you know, and that being of course the, 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 the black slaves. And, and so you sort of watch these ways in which race becomes invented, class becomes invented. Absalom, Absalom is, is an incredible book because it, it discusses all of these things in the most amazing kinds of ways. But, but it is just sort of speaking to your point, this way, these ways in which we create divisiveness 
and that is the in the exact opposite of what our our best interest could ever possibly be. Yeah, it was very long aside, but I'm obsessed with Faulkner. And I'm reading Absalom, Absalom now, so I tend to talk about it. Well, sure. Sorry, no, I, I do the same <laughs> yeah. thing. I do the same thing when I when a book has its hooks in me. Like I'll sit there and talk to I'll talk to strangers about it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, guy on the bus. You know? <laughs> So, um, you know, before I let you go, I want to hear a little bit about uh, you and, you know, your childhood and your family and like, you know, wh- like, where do you come from? I know you mentioned Philadelphia earlier, but like, um, can you talk a little bit about like your growing up and that whole thing? Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm from Philadelphia. Um, I moved around a lot as I was a kid, but I'm sort of essentially from there. My, my um, extended family is very much from there. My mother was, um, still lives in Philadelphia and um, was born there. My grandparents were from were a great migration great migration people actually they came both of them came not together they came from Virginia to Philadelphia in the very early part of the twentieth century um, but it's interesting you know I didn't grow up with stories of the South at all it was um also by the time I was born you know my grandparents were in their when they're mid seventies and so they they the South was kind of entirely gone from them I think um, and I think that my I, I, I don't even actually, I was about to sort of hazard a guess on their feelings about it, but it was just, they didn't talk about the South ever. ever. Um, and I'm an only child. I grew up mostly with my mother, um, and who was very, is, I'm sort of saying was, but um, my mother, she was almost 80, so it's sort of really weird when you, your parents get older and it kind of freaks you out and it's, it's sad and strange. She's in quite good health, but it's just odd to see your parents you know, not being the same people with the same sort of, you know, um, vigor that they had when you were a child. But at any rate, um, my mother is, um, was an artistic person, but it was sort of slightly discouraged, um, as, as sort of impractical for, for, um, for a person of, of, of her race and gender, you know, when she, when she was a, a young woman. And I think because of that, she, was very, very supportive of me always. You know, I grew up with absolutely not a dime to my name. I mean, we just didn't have any money at all at any point. <laughs> but um, my mother, despite that, and I suppose other people could have looked on and said, well, you know, if that's the case, you know, she should have encouraged you to do something practical like, you know, been a lawyer or a doctor. You know, you got a smart kid. You tell them to, you know, go into one of the professions. And But that was never my inclination, and my mother never um, – never for a second said that I had to. She sort of said, well, you know, I, I want you to grow up and be a person who's educated and can think for themselves and make decent decisions. Um, I don't know that the decisions that I, I made as an adult were always decent, but I, <laughs> but I certainly did, I suppose, follow, you know, what, whatever paths I was going to take. I'm, I'm very lucky. I, I thought for a long time in my life that everybody's parents were like that, that everybody's parents were just kind of like, you know, grow up and be a smart, decent person and get yourself an education. And that that was it. You know, I didn't realize that people sort of made their children have to be things. And my mother never did. And it was sort of the greatest gift anybody could have given me. Um, anyway, so I grew up in Philadelphia, more or less. I went to high school there. And then I moved to New York when I was 18 to go to college. And I had a, a varied and rich undergraduate career, as I like to state. That just meant I, that means I just kept transferring. <laughs> So, I just kept so, transferring from college to college is basically what that means. Okay, so before we get to college, I want to ask you about high school because uh, in the acknowledgments section of your novel, uh, which I read, uh, mm. you, know, you thank the Philadelphia High School for girls for being, quote, a light in the darkest part of my life. And mm. I'm, I'm curious to know what you're referring to there, if you don't mind. 
talking about? Um, I actually, I actually won't answer the question in any detail. But, um, but it was a period in which my mother and I were going through a great deal of stuff um, that was very, very difficult. And I'll, I'll kind of leave it there. But it was, it was a very, very difficult. The years from 13 to 18 were very, very difficult years of my life. And my school at that time, the Philadelphia High School for Girls is great. It's one of the last few sort of remaining public all-girls schools in the country. So it is great also just, I think, for girls to go to schools like that where you sort of, it's the girls that, you know, I don't know, are good at physics and play the trombone. Do you know what I mean? So you, you sort of have this, like, I can do anything girl power kind of sense without it being sort of yelled at you by any external source, you know. Um, but also it was just, um, it, I had incredible teachers who became mentors, and it and it was a place where, it was sort of the most stable part of, of my life um, during those teenage years. Okay. And then, you know, you said you, you jumped around from college to college as an undergraduate student. And, you know, I think for a lot of people listening, the, the, the route that you took to get where you are today took a lot of different turns. And it didn't happen for you when you were 24 years old, you know, as, right. as so many of us dream of it, you know, being like that. And it so rarely happens. And I also think there's some downside to having that happen when you're really, really young because, oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's I don't know, there, there's some some humility and some perspective that you get from uh, having to struggle a bit. And so, uh, you know, you worked as a fact checker. I know I read that you, <laughs> you mentioned this earlier that you lived in Italy. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about like jobs that you had, places that you went on your way to Iowa and eventual publication superstardom. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I um, before I became a superstar, Brad. No, that, that's so ridiculous. Um, I, 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 I can never. You know, people say things. I mean, I know you said it in a tongue-in-cheek way, but you know, people say things like, "Well, now that you're successful," and I just can't. You know, or like, "Well, now that you've arrived," and it's so bizarre to me. Like, I don't understand kind of what that means exactly. It's, it's. I just kind of can't get my head around it. But anyway, that's not what you're asking. Um, I, let's see, I was a waitress for a long time. I worked at, this, these, these, these things all happened to New York. I, in New York, I waited tables for a long time. I worked in a homeless services agency as an like, assistant to the director. And then I had to stop working there because there, this poor man, who, I, well, that's a, a whole long story, but it was just, it was, it was, it was, I, I discovered that I was not tough enough. To, to, to work there because I sort of got to this point where I was kind of crying all the time randomly. I, I wouldn't cry at work, you know, but, but at home, like I just, I sort of couldn't, I, I just wasn't, I wasn't tough enough. Or I, I'm still a bit disappointed in myself for that, but, but at any rate, what can you do? Um, and I, um, I, then I started, I, I went to magazines and I started fact checking and doing some like freelance writing and that, that was mostly what became my bread and butter from probably around age 25 to right up until I left for Iowa when I was 36. And then in, in, the, in the interim period, I, I, I went away. I, I went and I lived in Italy for five years. I was, um, had not intended to stay there for five years. I was just sort of taking a break from my, my life in New York. And then my life just kind of kept going in, in there. And then I did, like, didn't leave so until what, five years why later. why Italy and what did you do there? Well, I... It, it, it sort of chose me. It's very strange. I I had never I'd been I traveled a lot in my early and mid twenties, and I had oddly never been to Italy because I just I wasn't interested in it. And I, so I, I was going on a trip. I was going to Spain, and a friend of mine had recently moved to Florence, and so he said, 
well, if you're going to be here, why don't you, you know, come see me? So, you know, n- never one to, to turn up my nose at a free bed in a foreign country. Of course, I went. So I, I you know, so I was sort of hanging around. And then I realized, it was very strange. I'd never been there before. And I realized about the fourth day, I was like, this is it. This is where I want to live. And I had been thinking in the back of my mind that I wanted to live abroad, but I couldn't figure out where and by what means, etc. And it just became very apparent that by the time I'd been there for four days, that that's, that that's, where, I, that's where I wanted to be. Um, and my friend was very kind and kind of hosted me until I became annoying. And then he sort of threw me out and I got an apartment. And I did... Um, I did odd work, you know, I did the sort of usual, I don't have papers under the table work, like I worked, you know, at like a nightclub, and it was really horrible because it was before I spoke Italian, so I couldn't understand what anybody was ordering, and nobody really wants that to happen at midnight when you want to drink, like you don't want some bumbling person who doesn't know what you're saying, you just really want, you know, your rum and coke or whatever it is, Um, so that didn't really work out that well, Um, and then I worked in travel for a long time, for like two and a half years I worked for this woman who had a travel agency that did um that did sort of ground travel for like ground stuff like um what do I mean by that um tours and you know transportation services and things like that for for English speaking visitors to Tuscany and then that was sort of killing me after a while and so I stopped doing it and by that time my Italian was 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 pretty good and so I stumbled into a kind of home translation business like commercial translations I would I would um Someone might come to me and say, oh, you know, I just opened like this tiny little bed and breakfast and I'm going to put a site up on the internet, but I, I need, you know, English copy to, to, to English, you know, commercial copy to, to attract English speaking visitors. And so I would, I would do that kind of thing. Or I would clean up those, you know, those really bad like, Google translations. Sometimes you go and look at like a winery or a little bed and breakfast in some foreign country and they have that really hideous Google translation doesn't make any sense. Right. So I would clean up that stuff for people or I would write them like original copy. And, that was, and that's how I supported myself for about the last two and a half years that I lived there. So I had a little business that I operated from home doing that. Cool. Wow, that's great. I'm jealous. <laughs> um, and, you know, you, you mentioned that you had worked as a fact checker and my, immediately my mind jumped to uh, Hattie and to, <laughs> to the book that, you know, to the work that you had to do to like check the historical record. Like, in a way, you were, you know, all along, you were prepping for the writing of this book. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Isn't that funny? Huh. Yeah, I never sort of thought of it that way, but yeah, I suppose so. I mean, because you, you have to have gotten somewhat good at fact-checking. I mean, I know yeah. it's, it's not like... I'm an excellent fact-checker, actually. Right. <laughs> I don't toot my own horn very often, but I'm a very good fact-checker. <laughs> you, be, you better be careful. People are going to start, like, you know, emailing you. I know. Well, not with fiction. Not with fiction. Disclaimer. Disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, just a couple more things I wanted to ask you about, and then I'll, I'll let you go. But um, you know, I read in an interview as I was prepping uh, for this conversation that you've been writing essays on the nature of faith and belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about that. I'm interested, like, why that stuff? Is I mean, it's obviously an area of interest for you. Oh, it's it's an enormous, and I'm I'm I've I've a real interest in theology in general, not because. Not because I don't I think of my own religious beliefs, or, or probably in part because of my own religious beliefs, which are which are sort of ambivalent and all over the place. But um, what I think attracts me me most to theology is that the ways in which it asks the big questions about why we suffer and what it means to be a human being, what it means to die, what it means to you know all of these kinds of the, the, the big whys of of being a person on this earth. 
um, the ways in which it asks those questions are, to me, profoundly beautiful and profoundly, um, profoundly elegantly formed in a way that makes sense to me. I may or may not agree with the answers. Do you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not a devoutly religious person, so my, my interest in theology doesn't come from that. But the ways in which the questions are posed seem to me to be among the most beautiful and most relevant ways in which those questions, those big questions are asked. So that's where, that's where my, that's where this sort of theological interest comes from. And are we talking Christian theology, or is it like... We were talking Christian theology, yeah. Okay, we're so it's not Christian like theology. interfaith, or do you have like Hindu theology, like interest? No, no, and I think that some of that also surely comes from my own, um, from my own background. I grew up very, very, very religiously, um, like Pentecostal, super religious. And, Wait, is um, that like speaking in tongues stuff, or no? Yeah, yeah, there is some of that. In, in, in my um, grandparents' church, people didn't... Well, actually, no, people did, they went to, there were two different churches that they went to. The first one that they went to, people did speak in tongues. The second one, people did not speak in tongues. But it is this kind of, this notion of, of, um, of salvation through sort of giving your, your life over to Christ, and there are conversion experiences. Sometimes people speak in tongues, sometimes they don't. Um, you know, the, um, an absolute literal reading of the Bible, always and forever, that kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I grew up Catholic. I don't know. No one, no one ever spoke in tongues. But I, every time I see like video of people speaking in tongues, I'm just like, "What in the hell is going on here?" <laughs> it's 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 really um, it's really something. You know, there, there's um, James Baldwin grew up um, as a Pentecostal, and he in fact was um, had a conversion experience when he was a young man, like 14, so a boy really, and then was a child preacher until he was 17. And he said some really interesting things about the church. You know, I mean, as, as he was, you know, sort of older adult, James Baldwin was no kind of Christian. You know, I mean, he was not <laughs> was not interested in church theology. In fact, he, you know, he sort of would call it a slave religion and, and that kind of thing. Slave religion in reference meaning to the actual American black slaves, but slave also in terms of its, its sort of um, denial and negation of, of kind of human will. So he had a very bad opinion of the whole thing. But... He did say, um, in, in an essay called Down at the Cross, which is in the fire next time, he said, he talked about the ways in which the church marked him indelibly, you know, the sort of, the high drama, and he didn't mean that drama in the sort of superficial way, but the high drama of the church. I mean, when, when you grow up, especially in a kind of Pentecostal environment, you see, you see sort of human um, frailty and vulnerability in such bald states, do you know what I mean? Like you see like grown men kneeling in front of the altar, weeping for forgiveness and people praying for their, for their children that are ill, people grappling with, I don't know, addictions of various sorts. I mean, you see people at their most raw sort of grappling with their own humanity in the most incredible ways. And, it, and it, I don't think it goes away. And so certainly, though, again, it, there's no part of me that, that sort of... Um, that believes anything about the kind of Pentecostal theology or Pentecostal worldview with which I was raised, I have an enormous amount of respect for belief um, and, and for, the, for the miracle of faith, because I, I think that it is a miracle, you know, sort of like we're, we're human beings and we're kind of stumbling around in the dark and we come up against the wall of our own unknowing, you know, about death, about suffering, about all of these kinds of things, even about joy and about beauty. And we come smack dab against this wall of our unknowing, 
And instead of backing away from it or sort of going into a little corner or becoming bitter about it or something like that, we have year after year, millennium after millennium, we have taken this strange leap called faith. Why do we do that? It's, it's, it's fascinating. And, it's, and it seems to me also that, that the study of theology is pretty close to the ground. Do you know what I mean? Like when, when you think about philosophy, certainly I think the two are asking often the same exact kinds of questions. You know, they're just being phrased very differently. And of course, the answers to the questions are very different. But I'm not that interested in the answers. I'm interested in the questions. But, you know, it, philosophy sometimes seems to me somewhat, um, it, it is not, it's not, you know, it's, it's not a sort of participatory discipline. Do you know what I mean? In the sense that, you know, your average everyday guy, you know, on the bus of, you know, buying coffee at the Dunkin' Donuts isn't, is perhaps on some level gra- grappling with philosophical questions, but on a very sort of present accessible level, likely has some sort of opinion about theological questions. It's very close to people, you know, and when, you, and when I sort of think about people's humanity, it seems a very, um, um, a very good place to start to begin to understand who people are, you know, and how they understand themselves in this world. Yeah, you know, I, I, I go back and forth with this because, like, I don't, I don't want to rain on anybody's parade, but at the mm-hmm. same time, like sometimes I think about faith and I think about the answers that people come up with or the mm-hmm. beliefs that they adopt. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, if you, if, if you just don't know, why can't we just say, I don't know, instead of being like, there's a man in the sky and he's watching everything we do. <laughs> it drives me crazy. It's like, what good is belief if what we're believing in is like so clearly like fairy tale-ish? And then someone else might say, well, it's not fairy tale-ish to me, but it just seems, you know. I get frustrated with it because to me it's like quite obvious you know, that we're like... Yeah, well, you know, but, but it's interesting. I mean, in some ways it does seem obvious. And I think that I used to think in, in, along the same lines. And again, I do, I do actually believe in God, but I don't. I'm not a practicing religious person. You know, I don't. I don't it's sort of many of the sort of things that go along with, with believing in God in a kind of organized religion context are things that are not. Um, that so you, have absolutely no appeal to me. You know? so, so, but you have. So, you, when you say you believe in God, it's like a personal understanding of some greater power, not like a paternalistic. No, yeah, exactly. The, 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 like, the former, not the latter. No, 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 not okay. not like a man in the sky who's like not like the either same, a single dad who sent his. No, no, not like that. No, 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 not like that at all. No, 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 that, is, that is not my understanding of God at all. Okay, yeah, um, I get that. But, but, but you know, but it's interesting because I think. Much so much of what we do is is actually based on faith, and when I say faith, I don't necessarily mean faith in God, but faith seems to be a human trait. You know, like when you when you start reading like the, the weird sort of um, like quantum physics, the sort of out further reaches of quantum physics, and you don't even have to go that far out, it all becomes theory. You know, I mean, string theory—it's wild. And, and obviously, it's it's not proven. But but even before you get that far, out, things start to become. You really have got to take a leap, a leap to to sort of grasp some of this stuff. And there is much in science that is sort of like at the edge. Do you know what I mean? Not the like strictly sort of super empirical stuff. Do you know what I mean? And and not the su- strictly super empirical stuff in mathematics either. You know. But I mean, how many sort of. Um, theorem are not proven. How many things are kind of like we've really got to kind of take some sort of leap to wrap our minds around this stuff? It seems to me to be an indelibly, um, or, or rather I should say, an irrevocable part of being human to have faith. 
Yeah, well, and it's like, I mean, what, what just popped into my head as you were saying that is like this thought that I have fairly regularly, you know, and I think it's a good thought. Uh, it's also somewhat unsettling, but it's that existence and everything that we see around us is it's a lot weirder than we give it credit for. Like we're on a ball. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like it's bizarre. It's bizarre, and like we that need... any of it works. You yeah, know? Yeah, it's just all so strange. It's all and so the, and the, and it seems to me that like these this, this sort of you know these kind of recurring or I shouldn't say recurring. That's not adequate language. These things that human beings do over and over again, which is to keep asking why, 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 how, why. We just, we, we keep doing it, and we won't stop doing it. And we also seek beauty. And, and these things, they're just, they seem to be, they're just sort of woven into the fabric of what it is to be a human being. There's something really... Um, very profound and, and very fascinating about that. And it, it's never going to go away. It hasn't thus far, and it's not going to, you know? No, and part, that's... It's part um, of the wiring. It's part of the wiring. It's, it's really part of the wiring. You know, and, and, and kind of how could it not be? I mean, we, 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 we are. We're on a ball. You know, it's March. Soon, magically, for some reason, just like they always have, some leaves will appear on this now barren, very sad-looking tree outside of my office window. Huh? Yeah. I mean, we can we can sort of trace this. We all know what photosynthesis is, and et cetera, et cetera, and the seasons, and what happens in the root. We all know that stuff. But why? And I'm not saying I have an answer. You know, I mean, obviously the sort of Christian answer would be God. I'm not saying that that is the answer, or that I agree with that as an answer. But just the fact that it happens, it's just really very strange. Yeah. <laughs> and so, of course, we're going to keep asking why. And that's, you know, that's I'm, very beautiful. I'm just going to go on the record as saying I think we're in the Matrix and it is controlled by <laughs> You know, so in the last two weeks of, of travel, because I basically travel every single week, I'm kind of exhausted. But in the last two weeks, at some point, I first the Matrix and then the Matrix reloaded. In consecutive weeks, it happened to be on the hotel TV when I happened to turn it on. Isn't See that what funny? I'm saying? And now you're talking to me. Here we are. And now I'm talking to you. <laughs> and maybe next week when I travel, what will it be? What's the last? Of, I forget what the last. Revolution, uh, I think is what. Revolution, yeah. Maybe that will be on. That would be truly strange. Okay, so uh, last question. Uh, mm-hmm. All of this talk about faith and belief, you know, that's mm-hmm. it's of interest to me too. Um, it's interesting to talk to somebody who's like, uh, you know, tuned into all that. But are you writing a book? Uh, involved? Because are these essays that you're toying with? Is are you doing so with an eye on putting together a book of some kind, or is this for just like, you know, individual publication here and there? I I think I'm toying with the idea of turning into book. You know, essays are very intimidating because you have to be smart to write them. And so I get very intimidated by <laughs> by essays, yeah, me too. and and I also don't. Yeah, I mean they're just enormously intimidating. So, um, in as much as you know, if if it works out, <laughs> then then that would be something that was that was of interest to me. But now I'm sort of really in the beginning stages. I'm and now I'm not writing very much at all because I because I said I just get on a plane every week and end up in a hotel room watching the Matrix. But um, <laughs> which has its merits. Which when has its things merits. calm down, what did you say? I said that has its merits. You know. It does have its merits. Does indeed. Room service in the Matrix. Um, but when those things calm down. Um, I, I will sort of go back and, and see where I am. But, but there are a lot of, yeah. Well, you um, know, and you must have, I mean, the, the, the success of Hattie and all that's happened for you, you know, it does have to give you, it has to give you a shot of confidence as a writer that like, oh, I'm on the right track. Like people are responding to this. I, I, I'm good at this. 
No? I mean, you... Yeah, I mean, well, I think what it has done is make me understand that this really is my life's work. Like, that is... So, I, I know that. But the weird thing is, you know, one... It's kind of like one book doesn't have anything to do with the other, you know? Like, so, so this book has done really well, and it's got this boost from Oprah, and, and people are really into it, and it's gotten lots of critical, critical acclaim and all this kind of stuff. But that doesn't really mean bubkiss for the next one. Right. You know, like each one is absolutely separate. So, it's, so it, it is th- that this is my life's work, yes. That I have confidence that it will go well, not necessarily. Do you know what I mean? Like, like I, I hope for it. And certainly this, this is a really, really, really good sign. And what it has done is, is build a foundation so that I can write the next book. Do you know what I mean? It's not like I mean, we sort of have this arrived at this cynical and, and also difficult place in publishing where sometimes, you know, if your first book just absolutely tanks, it is very, very difficult to get a, an, another chance. So, so fortunately, you know, that, that's not going to happen to me, but it, but it has no bearing on whether or not I will be able to say what I want to say in the next book, you know. And so I'm, I'm grateful and certainly more confident about all this stuff than I was two years ago, but, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't have any sense of like, oh, I've arrived and, you know, now I just have to, you know, churn out a couple of novels, you know, I mean, I think it's, you know. Do you have, do you feel, do you feel any kind of like pressure to follow up? I mean, I would imagine that would be like, like in my neurotic mind, I would be like, oh God, how do I follow this up? Like, how do you navigate that? I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not being sarcastic. Like, I, I honestly, I honestly don't know. I think that at some point, and not I think, I know that at some point all of this will calm down and there will be quiet again and I can kind of go back to trying to do my work. And I think that I, I don't know how I will how I will figure that out. You know, there's this sort of fear, I suppose, that anybody can have, you know, if you have some big success with a first work that, you know, you'll never, like you're saying, that you'll sort of never live up to that again. I don't think about it a tremendous amount, but the, I also may not be thinking about it a tremendous amount because I'm not writing right now. When I do start writing, perhaps I will be paralyzed with terror, but then I'll just have to try and find some kind of way just to call, get over it. Just call Oprah. Just text her and be like, help me, <laughs> help me Oprah. Just ha- she'll have you out to like her lavish estate in Montecito and she'll, you'll just do like yoga together or something. <laughs> I feel like that wouldn't help me at all. I need to be like sort of anxious and miserable to write. To write. I'd be like, oh, I'm just, I'm just doing yoga on this lawn and sunny and I wouldn't get anything done ever. Oh my gosh! Well, I, it's been so fun talking with you, and uh, I congratulate you on all that's happened. It's really one, a wonderful ride you've had, and uh, I certainly wish you all the best. Uh, you know, with the next thing when it, when it comes around. No, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. All right, you guys, that is it for now. That is Ayana Mathis. Wasn't she great? You can find her on the Facebook, and her novel once again is called The Twelve Tribes of Hattie. It's available now from Knopf. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, uh, hey, thank you for rating and reviewing the show at iTunes. If you like the podcast and you haven't done that yet, please do that. It just takes, like, two minutes. It helps the cause greatly, and I would really appreciate it. And uh, while you're at it, don't forget to get the app, the official Other People app. That is free of charge, and it is available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can access premium content, the full archives, etc. So uh, I think that does it. I think I covered everything. I feel pretty good. I feel like we accomplished a lot. You know, we learned a little bit about uh, about Ayana. 
We learned a little bit about Oprah. Which makes me wonder, uh, do you think Oprah Winfrey listens to this show? I mean, she likes books, right? Maybe she listened to this episode. Oprah, if you're out there, hello. Thank you. (laughs) I live in Los Angeles. Uh, I can drive up to Montecito. We can hang out. We can talk. We can play croquet on your lawn. Please remember that Graham Greene never learned to drive a car and that famous art critic Clement Greenberg once said, quote, all artists are bores, end quote. Uh, Okay, thanks for listening, you guys. Thanks for being here. Thanks for spreading the word. I appreciate it. Thanks for all the mail and so on. I will be back again on Wednesday with another episode, so please stay tuned. Wherever you are, stay tuned. (laughs) 